place, and it's my privilege to serve as the uh, lead pastor here at Sharp Chapel. Uh, this is a, a time of uh, people being away on holidays and people on holidays coming here, and it's great to uh, see folk back with us. Great to have the whole Wilson clan from Rift Valley Academy. Great to see Daniel, Caleb, and Levi uh, all grown up pretty big right now. So it's great to see you all. And also uh, the Zidens. I see Joshua and Nathaniel here, I think, for the first time for a wee while. So it's great to see them. And um, Salvo and Anna Giovanni are with us, I believe, with their kids uh, from Grenoble. So you can say hi to them. And Mike and Helen Stark. Actually, I could keep going. And already I've offended you because I've not mentioned your name. So that's, this is the curse of doing this. But it is great also to welcome Ian and Christine Griffiths, who are sitting right down here. And um, about 60-odd years ago, uh, Ian's father, Gerald Griffiths, was the pastor at Charlotte Chapel. And uh, welcome back to Charlotte Chapel, even though it's a different building uh, that you are used to. It's great to have you here. And if you remember... Gerald, you might want to come down here and say hi to these guys after the service is over. They had the joy of, uh, of hearing their son Jonathan preach at Keswick this past week where he did the morning Bible readings and I heard they were excellent. This is the kind of the last Sunday uh, of Angus Bell being a ministry apprentice and typically there he is, he's behind the screens, he's serving. You can't see him, he's hiding, but he's busily serving and uh, the great thing is that I think Angus is going to continue coming to Charlotte Chapel, even as he shifts from being a ministry apprentice to doing something with invertebrates. And you can speak to him about what he's going to do with invertebrates in a laboratory somewhere. But it's been a complete joy to have Angus to be part of the team. Uh, as we've read books together as a team, if we've not quite understood what we've said, Angus has been the guy who's been explaining it to us. So it's been a massive blessing. His love for people, his love particularly for children, the way he engages with all ages has just been amazing. So we're excited for seeing what the Lord's going to do in and through your ministry, brother, and uh, we'll pray for the invertebrates as well. <laughs> Shall we pray as we come to God's word? Can we really stand in your throne room, O oh God. Yes, through the blood of Christ we can. What a privilege it is to be gathered here in your presence. By your spirit. We ask that you would help us to see more of your glory as we gaze into the mirror of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you saw the sermon title for this morning, and if so, you might be thinking, why on earth is the pastor going to talk about curtains? Curtains! My goodness. Blokes might be thinking, how on earth could you spend 30 minutes talking about curtains? If you're new to church, if you're exploring Christianity, you might be thinking, what have I stumbled upon here? Uh, is being a Christian having a strong desire to discover interior design. Is that what's going on here? Well, let me explain what we're doing. About this time last year, we began a series preaching through the book of Exodus. And if I was to summarize the whole book in a few sentences here, it would be, we've seen how God is the God who delivers the first 19 chapters of Exodus 
points out how he rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and he is taking them to the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. And then the midsection, we, we discover this, the God who delivers is the God who demands. Uh, and it, there you have the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai. And God is teaching his freed people how to live as free people. What does it look like? And in summary, it looks like a people who love God, first four commands, and love people, the final six. And now we've made it to this final section in the book of Exodus, uh, from chapter 25 to 40, where we see that God's big purpose for all of this is that God desires to dwell amongst his people. The God who delivers, the God who demands, the God who dwells. This is what is so exciting. This is, you know, it's quite striking when you read these chapters. There's so much about this tent called the tabernacle. There's so much about furnishings and fabrics and gold and all this sort of stuff. This tabernacle is quite a big deal. It repeats it twice. Let me show you a little video representation of what it might have looked like in the center of the camp. Make a sanctuary for me, uh, God said to Moses, and I will dwell among you. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. See, the significance of this tent is that this is God's tent. This tabernacle tent was the first earthly residence for God. All the furniture, all the features were God's design, including the curtain inside the tent. The heart of the tabernacle is what you're looking at right there, is this space called the most holy place where the, the Ark of the Covenant was. Inside there were the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets. Above it, this golden box was a solid golden lid with, with a symbolic golden cherubim with their wings outstretched over the Ark of the Covenant. This was the most holy uh, place. This represented the throne room of God. The touchdown point of heaven upon earth. The place where God promised to meet with his people. And this tabernacle was to be set up at the heart of Israel. As you see it there. As the 12 tribes camped around it. And Israel was especially picked by God to be his treasured people. To be part of his plan of salvation for all the nations. So did you get this? There's the tabernacle at the center of Israel, around which are the nations of the world, which is to say that the tabernacle was the most important place in the, in the, in the whole world. This is the place where people could meet with God. God at the center, who rules both heaven and earth. This tabernacle is a big deal. So we've been slowing down to think about each part of it each part of this tabernacle, and today we're thinking about the curtains. The curtains, yes. The curtain that separated this tabernacle tent into two spaces, uh, the holy place, it separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. 
But do you know what? We're not really here to talk about curtains. The point is this. It was a big clue that we read in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read it to you again. It was read to us a little bit earlier. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. Big clue. If you want to understand the Old Testament, the New Testament is the key that unlocks it. There's something about this tabernacle curtain that will help us to come to know and understand the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the most important person in human history. This is what makes the curtain so important. That's why we're spending time on the curtain. And I want us to first consider what it had to teach the people of Israel at that time, and then what it teaches us about Jesus today. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26, and uh, you'll find this on page 84. It really will help you to have a Bible in front of you. You're going to be jumping around today. And uh, if you'd like a Bible, you don't have one, put your hand up. We can still get one to you if you keep your hand up. But turn to page 84 in the Church Bibles, Exodus chapter 26. I'm going to read from verse 30. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood, overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant law behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. Place the tabernacle outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. Make gold hooks for this curtain, and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and cast five bronze bases for them. This is God's word. So imagine what it was like then for the Israelites... Um, settled in the camp in the wilderness as they journeyed to the, to, to the promised land. They'd have seen the tabernacle at the center of their campsite, peeking above uh, these eight-foot-high courtyard curtains made of fine linen that surrounded it. How could you come closer to God? Well, you'd have to come through a beautiful curtain gate of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. This, you can see there's some mirroring of what's happening in the inner curtain on finely twisted linen. And having come through that gate, you would see the bronze altar where the priest could offer animal sacrifices as sin offerings on behalf of the people. And beyond that, you would see the bronze wash basin 
which was the place of washing where the priests had to wash before entering into the tabernacle tent. To get any closer to God, you need your sins forgiven. You need to be washed clean before you even get into the tabernacle tent. And you know, only the priests could enter the tent. If you weren't a priest, you would hear about what was inside it. You would, you would hear about the pieces of furniture, but you wouldn't get to see it. you just see the external uh, curtain entrance, which again was kind of got the same uh, colored twine on the fine linen. But the priests, in a sense, were representing you. You did get inside the holy place through your representative, the priest. And he went into that space, and in there there was a golden lamp on, and then a golden table with some bread on top. We're going to think about that in coming weeks. And straight ahead there would have been this um, golden incense altar, which we thought about last Sunday. But you know what? You could not get as a priest any further. The way was blocked by this wall of linen, brilliantly colored with blue, purple, and scarlet, just like the entrance to the main courtyard, just like the entrance into the tabernacle tent. But this has got cherubim embroidered into it. We don't know exactly what it would look like. And so you see artists will do different versions of what it might look like. But here's one idea. What we do know about this is that it's called in Exodus chapter 40, the shielding curtain. It shielded the Ark of the Covenant on the other side in the, in the place known as the most holy place, the, the holy of holies as the King James called it. This was the place of the immediate presence of God, the place where God promised he would meet with them. And the shielding curtain hung between the holy place and the most holy place. Now what did this curtain teach them? Well, I think it had double purpose. The first purpose was to keep people out from the immediate presence of God. And the key is the depiction of the cherubim that was skillfully woven into the curtain. The cherubim are described in the Bible as these mysterious winged uh, angelic beings who are God's kind of royal attendants. And the first mention of them is in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned in the Garden of Eden, disobeying God's command, chapter 3 tells us that they were banished from the garden. And God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life that was back in the garden. See, the original sin of Adam and Eve brought separation between God and them. They were banished. They were now outside the garden in a world of thistles and thorns. They were no longer in close fellowship with God. They were no longer in friendship with God. They were cut off from the tree of life. So, in a sense, that explains why every descendant since has been subject to death. We are in a decaying, diseased, and dying world. Hey, hey! We try and cheer ourselves up, but that's the truth of it. That's the world we live east of Eden. 
cut off from the God of life and the God of glory. And the cherubim guarded and blocked the entrance back into Eden. Now, if you see an electricity substation, you'll often see a scary warning symbol of, um, of uh, kind of an electric bolt coming down on a collapsed person with the words, danger of death. I think the angelic embroidered in the curtains are kind of like that. This is the way into heaven and it is dangerous for you and me as sinful people to go there, to come into the immediate presence of a holy God. It will mean death and eternal, eternally so. Now why is this? Well, because God is holy. We sang about it. And we are people who are descendants of Adam and Eve, and uh, we copy them now that we are also prone to sinful rebellion against God. We're people who find lying and stealing and cheating and disobeying God's word very, very easy. It comes to us very naturally. You don't teach a kid to be like that. It just is the way we are. And yet God is a just God who punishes sin. So with our sins unforgiven, it's just not safe. It's not safe to stand before him. Danger of death, the cherubim say. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, it says in Romans chapter 1. We suppress the truth of God by our wickedness. We know God is there, but we try and act and live as if he's not important, as if he's not significant. That's the way of the world. Now, the second point here, too, is that while the debt of sin remains uh, and, uh, in an unpaid way, we humans, we just couldn't bear to be in the presence of this holy God. I'm sure everyone in this room has had some experience in the past where you felt shame. You've done something very bad, and then it was discovered and exposed in front of other people. How do you feel? Well, the feeling is one of intense shame. Um, we wish we could run away and hide. We don't want to be seen. Adam and Eve, when they had rejected the word of God and eaten the fruit they shouldn't have eaten, when they heard God coming in the garden, what did they do? They, they hid they were hiding from God. In fact, they were trying to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. We're, 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 we're trying to cover ourselves up from our holy God. That's shame. And if we were to appear before God with our sins unforgiven in the light of his holy presence, it would make us feel so ashamed we could not live with it. Uh, Isaiah, who was a spiritual giant in his generation, records uh, an experience of, of seeing a vision of God. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. Why don't you keep your finger in Exodus and turn to Isaiah chapter 6? Because I think this gives us a flavor of what it would mean to come into God's presence. Isaiah chapter 6, page 691. Page 691 in the church Bibles. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. So he's in the throne room of heaven. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, these other angelic beings. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. His shame is exposed. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is the problem in our sins. We could not bear to be in the presence of this holy God. One of the roles of the priest was to offer animal sacrifices as sin offerings for the people's sins. And yet, they had to keep offering them. Those animal sacrifices could never really take away sins. They could never really satisfy anyone's conscience that they were now completely forgiven. And so people were never really sure if they were fit to enter into God's presence, either in the tabernacle or in heaven itself. But as we've been reading about in the book of Hebrews... This that we're reading about in Exodus, the law is the shadow of the good things that, are, that have now come. So the first purpose of this curtain was to keep people out from the presence of God. The second purpose of the curtain was actually to allow people to come in to the holy place. This curtain was actually a provision of God to allow people still to come near. If there'd be no curtain, then the whole space would have been the most holy place. They'd not even enter into the tabernacle tent at all. There'd be no separation. So God instructed them to place a shielding curtain in the tabernacle to screen the most holy place so that the priest could come into the tabernacle, that they could see these beautiful objects that taught them about God. You know, we messed up this relationship with God, but God desires still to restore this relationship. And the curtain was an act of his gracious mercy to allow the priests still to come near, to enable them to come and minister and serve their priestly duties, to keep the golden lamps burning, to maintain the bread of the presence in the presence of God and to, to be able to burn incense, to offer prayers on behalf of the people before uh, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant with the shielding curtain in between. And as they stood there representing the people, interceding for them, as they offered their prayers for the, uh, behalf of the people, they could still draw that close to God because of the shielding curtain. They could look at its beautiful colors of blue and purple and scarlet and see the cherubim and, and they could begin to learn something of the holiness and the beauty of God. So how does this um, communicate to us? What does this say to us today? How is it relevant? Well, these are the shadow of the good things that are now here through Jesus Christ. We saw the big clue at the beginning, didn't we? I, I let you see the big clue. Maybe I, I, I stole my thunder. But the big clue is Hebrews chapter 10. The curtain that is his body. When God took on human flesh, 
God was so committed to restoring this relationship that God himself entered into the world. He took on human flesh in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could go back in a time machine and travel to uh, Israel in those days, if you'd seen Jesus walking um, along with his carpentry tools in Nazareth to do a, a job on somebody's kitchen... He didn't have a holy glow on his head. He didn't look just like an ordinary person. In fact, you might not have noticed him at all. Just another workman in his white van coming to do a job just down the, in one of your neighbor's houses. Just as God was shielded by the curtain, so with Jesus, his full glory as God the Son was shielded from people's eyes. And yet this is the one that, as it says in the book of Colossians, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All of God was in this person, Jesus, this man. And yet the full glory of God was shielded. He just looked like an ordinary person. And the wonder of that is it meant that just as the priest could come up stand in that holy place and gaze at the curtain, men and women came up close to Jesus and they could look into his face, they could hear his words, they could watch the things he did and see what God was like without being overwhelmed. His glory was veiled. And if you're here today, and uh, this is all new to you, you're not a Christian, and yet you want to know God, we're so glad you're here. You've got something better to look at than a curtain. The curtain pointed to the historical Jesus. And we have four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus that you can read about in the New Testaments. Uh, the Gospel um, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew. I don't know if I said it like that. Matthew. Been in Scotland too long. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's why Christians love these accounts. Because the more you examine the life of Jesus, the more you'll be amazed at him. And this person that you read in many people's experience, walks off the page and straight into your life. And what people discover, can I suggest to you, is represented in these colored threads. There's a blue yarn. The first mention of blue in the Bible is, is earlier in Exodus, where Moses and the elders, after the covenant is confirmed, they actually go up Mount Sinai and have a covenant meal with God. And they see the feet of God upon the sort of the a sapphire blue of heaven floor. Blue portrays uh, the divine presence of God. It's a reminder that this real flesh and blood man had a heavenly origin. God the Son came from heaven and entered into our world. I want to suggest to you that the purple yarn speaks of his humanity as a descendant of King David. His royal pedigree 
to be the Christ, the, the Messiah King, the one that God promised would rule over an everlasting kingdom, which would transform the whole, transform the whole world. Do you want to know what God is like? Well, come and have a little look at this curtain, but then keep looking to look at Christ. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. It's there in black and white. You can begin to read it and examine it and think about it. Do you want to know what you are supposed to be like? Look at Jesus. There's a lot of people out there on an identity quest, and they think they're going to find their identity by looking inside themselves. Terrible place to look. You'll be very confused, and people are getting very confused out there. Look at what the true Adam looks like. Look at Jesus. This is humanity as we were supposed to be, free from sin, in right relationship with God, a perfect image bearer. And here is what we can be by God's gracious salvation of God. Have you come in today feeling actually fed up at yourself? Really disappointed in yourself, discouraged by yourself? Why can't I change? Look at Jesus. This is what you can be by God's amazing grace of salvation. This is what we are growing to be like as we put our faith and trust in him. But you know what? The gracious salvation, in a sense, is the key bit. Because that's what the third yarn is about, the scarlet yarn. It speaks of the blood of his sacrifice in the place of sinners. See, all four accounts of uh, the life of Jesus focus much more on the account of the crucifixion and his death. It is so vitally important we understand the significance of his death and resurrection. It's not enough to admire his life and his character. It's not enough to be amazed at his teaching. You need to be saved by him. Jesus taught that what was central was that he had to come to suffer and to die in the place of sinners. And if we're honest with ourselves, our lives just really don't match up to his life. The closer you look at Jesus, the more you're going to see that your, your own sinfulness. But then keep looking because here's the point. Jesus put it this way. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This one who came from heaven, descendant of David, truly divine, truly human, came to suffer upon a cross. And the drama of this salvation is caught up in the events that took place around the cross. So turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. I love the way that Mark does this in his account of the life of Jesus. If you turn to page 1023. Mark has recorded how after a very dodgy trial, Jesus was beaten, scourged, whipped, pierced with nails, hung on a wooden cross in the full horrors of the Roman execution by crucifixion. But the greatest suffering 
took place in the darkness. If you look at uh, chapter 15, verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This supernatural darkness in the middle of the day is speaking of this is the, this is the time where the holy God is meeting out his just wrath for guilty sinners. And Jesus willingly went there to take the punishment for our sins in that moment on the cross. We see his words, verse 34, as he quotes Psalm 22. And three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who had always been in the most holy place, in the most intimate relationship with God, is put out of that place as he bears our sin. And after that three hours, there is a final loud cry, verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. And then look what happened in verse 38. The curtain of the temple, the very same curtain that we have looked at in the tabernacle was copied as they created a, 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 a permanent temple in Israel itself. That very curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. As the torn body of Jesus breathed his last, having fully paid for sin, the temple curtain is supernaturally torn apart by God. God is fully satisfied at the sacrifice of his son upon that cross. And so God tears down the curtain. There is no need now for a division, a separation between a holy God and people who will come through the blood of Christ. Christ was put out so that we could be brought in to the most holy Place. You know, my friends, it's not just open for Jewish priests. And it's interesting that Luke records in Acts that many Jewish priests became believers. Perhaps they were well aware of what happened in the, in the temple, that the curtain had been torn. It's not just for Jewish people. It is for the nations. It is for all who will come and put their faith and their trust in what Jesus Christ achieved for us on the cross the risen Lord Jesus Christ, that now the curtain is torn and the way is open for the nations. For any and every person from every ethnic group who put their faith in Jesus, who will come by the blood of the Son of God. Whatever age you are today, whatever you've done, Whatever kind of life you've lived up to this point, our sins can be completely forgiven. We can be cleansed completely from a guilty conscience. His cross removes our shame and our guilt. It reconciles us back to God. Look, let's turn to Hebrews 10. It was read to us earlier. This is such a wonderful text when you've seen all the background. Hebrews chapter 10. And you're going to find that on page 1,208. 1,208. Therefore, brothers and sisters, 
Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, we don't have to be frightened now. The cherubim have been removed. The flashing sword is gone. The way is open. We can have confidence to enter the most holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way. Living reminds us that Jesus, who died on the third day, rose. He is alive. He's ascended. He's at God's right hand. He is the new and living way. Open for us to the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest of the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled, that speaks of the, the bronze altar, the place of uh, the forgiveness of our sins. Having our hearts sprinkled uh, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, that speaks about the, 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 the bronze basin. And now the curtain is opened. We are welcomed into the most holy place. My friends, this is such good news for sinners. Have you realized you're a sinner? You know, if you're a Christian, you've realized you're a sinner. You're in a room full of sinners. But what a wonderful thing when you realize there's hope for sinners. There's hope for sinners like me. There's hope for sinners like you. But you've got to draw near. Through the curtain, through Jesus, by his blood, you can come near. My Christian friends, you say you believe this, and yet you act sometimes like you don't believe it. You're looking at yourself and you're seeing your shame and your guilt. And some people sort of get so discouraged, they stop coming to church. Believe what you say you believe. The way is open into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way. So let us draw near to God. And my friends, if you've never done that, you can do it today for the very first time. We would love to help you to know that in this life you can have a real relationship with a holy God Joyfully entering into his presence day by day in prayer. Joyfully coming to meet with his people here. And know that when you die, you will receive a wonderful welcome into the most holy place of heaven. We'd love you to be clear on that. Please come and speak to us today if you're not clear. Will you draw near to God today? Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you want to draw near to us. And you gave us this tabernacle to help us understand it. You gave us a curtain that we would understand Christ. How we praise you for him. Who bore the suffering and punishment of our sin that we could draw near. Or give us great joy. Give us boldness and confidence to come day by day as we ongoingly are on this pilgrimage to, to your very presence and your actual, to heaven itself. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing of the events of the cross that gave us this great blessing to enter. Let's stand. Yes.